Hey, good morning. Yeah, well, welcome. My name is Brandon. I'm the pastor. Uh, well, I'm just one of the pastors here. That's what I am. Um, as he said, we are in a uh, series in the book of Job. Job is part of what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible before Jesus. Uh, and Job has this, this driving question that he's asking. And here it is. It's this. Is God just in a world of injustice? And so let's get started. All right, how many, uh, how many Aggies in the room? Show of hands. Yeah, that's about how many. You always know an Aggie when the whooping starts. Um, I don't have a problem with Aggies. I don't have any real issues with A&M in general. I do think that we can all agree that you have some strange traditions. Um, so you've got Midnight Yell, which I think is where you just get together at midnight and yell at one another. Uh, yell leaders, which as I understand are basically just male cheerleaders. Um, uh, my, I, that might not be true. I don't know. My favorite is your football game. Uh, it makes me wish I went to A&M, uh, but where every time you score, you, you mug down. And so as a married man now, if any of you guys have tickets, my wife and I would love them. But of all of them, the one I learned this week uh, was that you have a dog named Reveille. Uh Reveille is the highest ranking member of the Corps Cadets. And so if you are in the Corps, you report to a dog. Um, <laughs> I didn't write your org chart, I'm just observing it. Uh, but there was one, uh, there was one tradition that began in 1909, um, actually it began in 1907 and then became annual in 09. Uh, I learned that on Wikipedia. Um, and it was the bonfire. The bonfire that represented its burning desire to beat UT, that's where it came from. And on uh, November 18th at 2.42 a.m., 1999, the 59-foot, 5,000-log bonfire collapsed, killing 12 and injuring 27. And so here's the question. Why? Officially, stress on the center log and insufficient wiring. But if you're a parent of one of the 12, that answer might be true. But it's wholly insufficient. Just like the wire was insufficient to hold the logs together, that answer is insufficient to hold you together in those quiet moments of desperate grief. At some point, the question has to become not what happened to the logs, but why? Why, Lord? Why, God, if you're good and you love us, why would you let this happen? Why my child? Why? What could my child have possibly done to deserve this? Why? At some point, that has to be the question. And so we've been saying that uh, Job is a series of conversations between Job and some friends of his, and this week is no different. Uh, Job is responding to a friend named Bildad, and Bildad has an answer. Bildad's answer is this, God punishes, punishes those who deserve it. Job, Job, Bildad says, hey man, listen, I, uh, I know we're friends, man, and I, listen, I know uh, that uh, that you're hurting. I know that you've lost your kids, you've lost your wealth, you've lost everything. I, I know what you're going through, Job, but here's the deal, Job. You know this, man. You know this life can basically be boiled down to an if-then statement, right? If this, then that, right? So if this is happening, if you are suffering, then you are being punished, and if you are being punished, then you deserve it. And so Job, who, like the Aggie parents, lost his children, responds, and we're going to pick up his, his response in verse 11. Uh, and we're picking it up in verse 11 because 
uh, Job 19 is divided into three parts, and 1 through 12 is basically a recap of last week. Uh, but I want to highlight it, hit it, and then we'll move on to this week. All right, so Job 19, verse 11. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Now, quick summary from last week. This is where uh, Job uses this word adversary for God, and the word adversary is a first cousin, if you will, to the word that means Satan. And so Job here is not thinking of God and Satan in wholly different categories. Why? Because just like Satan would be against me, God is clearly against me. God's at war, and it's with me. He's surrounding me. Job 16, firing arrows at me. God's at war, and it's with me. And the reason we need to start here before we move on to the rest of chapter 19 is that if we're going to enter into the story of Job, and we're going to feel what Job felt, which is what we're after. Right? We don't simply want you to understand Job. We want you to feel Job. Once you enter into his story, then what we need to know is at best, Job could be characterized as emotionally unstable. At best. Right? So in one moment, uh, Job is going, I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything. And then here, hey, hey Bildad, you're, you're right, man. I, you're right. You're right. Clearly, you're right. And now, verse 13 through 20, um, Job is going to run through the evidence that Bildad is right. Let's start. Let's go verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. All right. Uh, I, I told you guys that a couple weeks ago, I went to my 20-year reunion, my 20-year high school reunion. It was incredibly awkward. Um, I, I went to Deer Park, southeast suburb of Houston. We had 790-ish people in my graduating class. Um, our reunion started at 8 p.m. at 9.30. We did a class photo, and there were 35 of us, right? So what makes that, what that means is uh, when you try to do the small talk and the, hey, hey, I don't really want to go in depth. I just want the quick, how you doing, and move on. Eventually, you circle right back around, and you stare at one another, um, we, we also had a, uh, we had a rush of people who showed up at 10 o'clock, all pretty tipsy, right? I was getting texts from old high school friends, uh, during the day saying, Hey, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. I'm so like, and I was just going, man, this is crazy. Like 20 years ago, we graduated and you're still afraid of what they think of you. This is, I should introduce you to Dodds Pangra. He does counseling. Um, but there was this uh, weird interaction that I had uh, there where everybody that I asked, hey, where do you live now? If they, if they lived in Philadelphia, it was like, I live in Philly. Uh, I got out. Uh, if it was the Heights, it was, I live in the Heights. It's just so great. It's so great to not be here in Deer Park, really, is what I'm saying. If it was Katie, the same thing. But if I said to somebody, hey, where do you live? And they said, um, I live in Deer Park. Every one of them, every one of them said this, but I swear I just moved back. Like, I, I swear, I just moved back. I just moved back to Deer Park, like, two weeks ago. In fact, I'm unpacking right now. I had to stop to come here to the reunion. Because in our Western individual culture, it's a badge of honor to get out and to get away. Not in Job's day. In Job's day, uh, you didn't leave your family. Your family didn't leave you. And in fact, to be abandoned by his family would have brought whole 
uh, an absolute shame upon him in society, and depending on where Job lived, depending on where Job lived, could have meant likely and probable death. You didn't leave your family. Your family didn't leave you. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, the guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. Now, Job 1, um, I've got Bill Gates cash, and I'm basically royalty. I've got servants everywhere in the perfect family. Now, Job 19, I call out to my servants, and I'm begging my servants for mercy, and they're not listening to me. In fact, I'm a foreigner in my own home. And I would say to us, uh, this might be a, uh, an aggressive statement, but I would say to us, there's nobody in this room who likely is able to understand what it is that Job feels right here. And let me explain why. Not, not all of us in this room are Americans. Not all of us are Americans, but most of us are. Um, uh, and most of us, whether you're African-American, Asian-American, uh, doesn't really matter. When you travel the country, when you leave the country and you travel, you travel as an American. And generally speaking, uh, when you travel uh, to other countries as an American, they're happy to serve you, right? Um, it's, it's just cash, really. That's all that is to it. Uh, but they're happy to serve you. And so, for example, the first time I went to Dubai, me and my buddy get off the plane. Uh, we see all the lines. We don't know where to go. We say to somebody, hey, um, where do we go? And they say, well, where are you from? We said, we're American. And the guy said, oh, American, come here, come here, come here. And he takes us over to the first class line. Now, I don't fly first class. Like, I don't have that kind of cash. And so I'm looking at the hundreds of people in the normal line. And because I'm American, I get to walk over to the first class line. I think because that's generally our experience in other countries, we are completely unable to feel what Job feels here. See, I think for us to understand more of what Job feels, we have to see him saying, hey, I'm, I'm, more, I'm, I'm, I'm more like an unwanted refugee in my own home. Like everywhere I go, um, I know that I don't belong here, and I know that you don't want me here. And so inside my own home, I'm looking around, and you're saying, I don't want you here. I'm saying, I don't really feel like I belong here anymore, and I'm an unwanted refugee in my own home. And now verse 17. This is just more evidence that Job is mounting, that God is clearly against me, and that Bildad is right. Verse 17, which verse 17, by the way, is my absolute favorite. When I read this in Boomtown the other day, which, by the way, we have Boomtown coffee now, uh, when I read this, I just started laughing. Like the table next to me was like, hey, the Bible's not funny. I don't know why you're doing that. I was like, it, it actually is. Um, we talked. Uh, verse 17, my breath, <laughs> here it is, my breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Here's why this is my favorite. You, wanna, you want proof that God is against me? My stinking breath. Like I have perpetual morning breath. Won't go away. Sign. It, it, it would be the equivalent of what he's saying here, which is a side note. Like I, 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 I do. I think it's hilarious. Um, but here's what Job is saying. Job is saying that I am disgusting to my own wife and to my children. Like, my wife and my children look at me, smell me, and they think, that man is disgusting. It would be like if I sat with my wife and I said, uh, it's my bride who's over there. If I said, hey, baby, I'm just going to, I think I'm going to start sleeping on the couch from now on. And she said, why? And I said, I just, I don't really find you attractive anymore. And in fact, I just, I kind of think you're disgusting. And so, couch for me. Like, you would fire me so fast if I did that, and you should. But that's what Job is feeling here. And as a side note, and listen, some of you know this. 
Some of you know this. Married or divorced, some of you know this. There is little. There is little that will make you feel abandoned by God faster than being abandoned by a spouse. So why would Job think clearly God has abandoned me? What more proof do I need? Let's keep going. Verse 18. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. So on his day, children stood silently in honor uh, to honor those coming around. If I'd have done this uh, when I was a child to my neighbors, they would have spanked me for it. Uh, I'm not recommending that we go back to those days. I do think it would have solved Job's problem, though. But it is more evidence that God is against me. And now verse 19. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. So know what Job is saying right here. My intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I loved have turned against me. I, I think that this is, um, like this is the author throwing the fishing line, hooking us and bringing us right into the heart of Job where he says, those whom I loved can't stand me. Like not, not just like we can't figure out a Friday night to hang out and I think they're probably trying to avoid me. Like they're looking me in the eye and they're saying, Job, I can't stand you. I can't, listen, stop telling me you love me, dude. I can't stand you. My friends abhor me. This is the evidence that Job is mounting. And then it says he's skinny. We talked about this is, this is God's wrath against me. Being skinny, now, that wasn't a good thing in Job's day. It wasn't a good thing. This was a sign of the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the curse of God landing on Job. And so here Job is saying, Bildad, you're right. If this is happening, then I must deserve it. I must deserve it. Clearly, I deserve it. And now there's a turn in Job where Job is going to take a left turn from where he is to what he wants. And what he wants is mercy and vindication. Let's look at mercy first. Job 19, verse 21. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. This is a uh, side note in the Hebrew. If there, there weren't exclamation points, right? So you couldn't do like the emoji with 12 of them, which please stop doing that if you, if you do 12 exclamation points. Uh, if you wanted to scream at something, you would double it. Like this, is, this isn't Job writing and having a conversation going, hey man, I, uh, man, I would love it if you would just have a little mercy. Um, this is Job going, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. Why? Why? Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job, I want Mercy because the hand of God has done this to me. Stripped me of everything. The hand of God has done this. My friend, why won't you have mercy on me? And what is mercy? One of my favorite theologians in the world defines it this way. Compassion in action. What is mercy? It's compassion in action. And so if we 
if we could just close our eyes together. Picture Job sitting on a rock out in the sun. He's got his garb on, rope around his waist, sweat coming down, tears just pouring out of his eyes. I can see him just hitting his chest and going, why don't you care? And I hear your words. Like, I know you showed up saying, I want to I bring sympathy. Compa-. Like, I hear your words. Why don't you care? At what point is this going to become compassion in action? Why don't you care? Why don't you care? Compassion in action is what all of us want when suffering Job's no different, but now he goes on. He doesn't just want mercy. He wants his name vindicated. Verse 23. Oh, oh, that my words were written. And what were his words? What were the words of Job here? What's he referencing back to? I'm innocent. I'm innocent. No, no, Bill, Dad, like I'm in a moment right now, like I'm on a high right now, and I hear you, and I, I get it, but no, you, you don't understand, Bill, Dad, I didn't do anything. Like I didn't, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything, just came out of nowhere. I didn't do anything. I'm a good man, Bill, Dad. I'm innocent. Oh, oh, that they, that they, that these words were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Listen, these are the two methods of recording in Job's day. The two methods of recording, book and on the rock. And here's the difference. One is portable, one is permanent. So I'm writing in a book so that it can be spread from person to person to person, from village to village to village, from city to city to city. Then why put it on a rock so that it would remain from generation to generation to generation? This is Job saying, I want my name vindicated before all, not just today and not just here. I want town upon town upon town, and I want generation after generation after generation after generation to know I am innocent. I didn't do this. I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. This is what he wants. He wants his name vindicated. And now, and now, Job in verse 25 is going to say something. That if you put yourself in the shoes of the ancient Israelite reader reading for the first time, it would have absolutely floored him. Like you wanna, if you want to learn how to read the Bible, you want to learn how to read the scriptures, um, there are times when you've got to just take the grammar and break the grammar down and figure out what it's saying. It's good. There are times when you need to put yourself into the story of the author, right? Uh, there are times when you need to put yourself in the story of the main characters, And then there are times when you need to put yourself in the shoes of someone who 2,700 years ago would be reading this for the first time, who doesn't know the rest of the story. And if you could put yourself in their shoes and you read this, you would be absolutely floored. And here it is, verse 25. For I know, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, he will stand upon the earth. Job uses a specific word here, a specific word for redeemer here, that 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 first time ancient Israelite reader, when he read it, or she, whenever they read it, here's what would have happened. They would have either 
either, they would have been in tears. They would have just gone, oh, I can't believe this. Tears. Or they would have gone, Job, you are out of your ever-loving mind, man. You have lost your marbles. Let me tell you why. The word he uses for redeemer, it's a specific word. It's a word that means kinsman redeemer. Right, so don't, don't let that phrase, that word kinsman redeemer, throw you off. It's a kinsman who redeems. It's a blood relative who redeems. And in the ancient Near East, there were a lot of reasons why you would have a kinsman redeemer, a blood relative, from losing possessions to um, having someone um, unjustly murdered. There are a lot of reasons why you'd have a blood relative, a kinsman, redeem you. And here's why the ancient first-time reader reading this would have said, Job, you're out of your mind. Like, you've lost it, Job. You don't have a kinsman who cares. You don't have a blood relative that's still with you, man. Like, every blood relative you have is gone. They have wholly abandoned you. They have left you, Job. You've got nobody. What kinsman is going to step in and redeem you? You don't have one. Let me tell you what might have moved him to tears. What might have moved the first time ancient Israelite reader to tears is that they would have also known this. They would have known that kinsman redeemer is also a function of God in the Old Testament. Let me show you. Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Israel is slaves, enslaved in Egypt. So say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. I will redeem you. I'll be your goel. I'll redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so that ancient reader would have said either, either Job has a family member, a blood relative, a kinsman that we don't know about or or Job is saying that God is going to come down, stand on the earth and redeem him. See, this is one of those moments where the Bible peaks up through the clouds. And the author knows what he's talking about, but doesn't know yet what he's talking about. You see, Job is sitting here saying, my Redeemer lives, my Redeemer is going to come. And we look back and say, Job, your Redeemer came. Your Redeemer, your kinsman, he came, your blood relative, he came. He came. And when he came, Job, this is what he did. He delivered, he was delivered up. Romans 4.25, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Job, Job, hey man, you, you want compassion in action? Jesus came, your Redeemer came, and he was delivered up. What more compassionate act could you ever ask for than the Son of God coming, redeeming by offering himself? Job, hey man, you, you, you want vindication? You want your name Cleared, he was raised for your justification. He was raised for your justification. Job, the mercy and vindication you so desperately desire collide in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because the Bible is peeking up through the clouds, 
if verse 25 would have stunned the first time at reader, verses 26 and 27 would have absolutely had them undone. Verse 26. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another my heart faints within me. This is a peek up through the clouds into the heart of Job and what it is that in the middle of Job's suffering he so desperately wanted. His driving hope that he would suffer, that God would come down, land, redeem him, and that he might suffer in the presence of God. Because let me tell you what Job knows. Let me tell you what Job knows. Job knows that there is a kind of suffering that words can't touch and only the presence of God can heal. It's a kind of suffering that too many of us in this room know. But what Job was after, what Job was after wouldn't happen in his lifetime. He's peeking up through the clouds looking forward to a resurrection that is yet to come. And so if Job is standing here, if Job's standing here, if he's sitting here, he's speaking English to us, or maybe, um, maybe a better way of saying it would be like this. If Job was alive today, uh, and you guys went to Boomtown, and you're sitting there having some coffee, what would Job say to you? What would he say to us? What, what would out of, out of here, out of Job 19, what is it that Job would say, hey, listen, you, you need to know this, you need to do this. What is it that Job would say? I think there would be two things. I think there would be two things that Job would say. I think first he would say, hey, you want to you wanna suffer well, suffer as kinsmen. Suffer as kinsmen. Romans 8, 16 and 17 lays the theological foundation or, or is a text that lays a theological foundation for church as family. It says that we're children of God, co-heirs with Christ together, provided that we suffer with him. This is that theological foundation for church as family. I think he would say suffer as kinsmen. And let me tell you, I've been here for two years now. Uh, one of your pastors, one of your shepherds for two years, and I've watched some of you suffer, and I've watched some of you suffer through some really rough stuff, from infertility to miscarriages to parents dying too young to losing brothers and sisters. Some marriages that are on the edge of falling off the cliff. And I've watched, I've watched Sojourn come around and be church as family with you. I've sat in the hospital room and watched people show up. I've seen people praying with tears for someone else. I think that's what it means and what it looks like to be kinsmen. He would say suffer as kinsmen, but not just suffer as kinsmen. Brothers and sisters united by the blood of Christ, a blood relative in Christ. He would say, suffer in the presence of God. But how? How do we suffer in the presence of God? Ephesians 2, 22. In him, you. You, speaking to the church at Ephesus, but applicable to all. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then Job would say that you're not just, church isn't just kinsmen, united by the blood of Christ. It's kinsmen who gather together and dwell in the presence of God. 
It means that when we weep together and when we cry together, when we, when we scream out together, we're screaming out as kinsmen in the presence of God. And so let me, uh, let me, let me, talk, about, let me talk about some sojourn language real quick. Um, I, I know that we do a good job of making some of our things confusing and strange and picking weird words. I, I get that. Uh, but let me tell you why we call it Sunday gathering and parish gathering. Here, here's why. The, the scriptures describe the church not as a building, not as a place, but as a people, a people who gather together, who when we gather together, we are gathering as kinsmen in the presence of God. When our parishes gather together, we, we're gathering together as kinsmen where God is present. So God doesn't dwell in buildings. He doesn't go to events. He's among a people who gather. That's why we're uptight about the word gathering. Why parish? Why not a community group or Bible study or you name it? We, we want community. We want the Bible studied. We want all of these things to happen. But historically, um, the word parish it just means church in a specific area. And so we're trying to be the church trying to have smaller groups of men and women who just do what the church has always done. Living out church as family, bearing one another's burdens, crying together, celebrating together. It's why we're uptight about some of the language that we use because we know that it can be strange and feel weird, but we also think when you get underneath it, it's really beautiful and really rich and gives us a chance at learning and becoming who it is that Job might want us to to be. And then here's the deal. It's knowing that and knowing that these are the things that Job would say, suffer as kinsmen, suffer in the presence of God. It's very practical. It's practical. It's practical because if when you think of the church, if when you think of the church, you think a building, like you think the lights, you think I'm going to go to church means I'm going to go to 608 Aurora or I'm just going to go to an event where I listen to a sermon, I eat some bread, dip it in the cup, and I go on back about my Mary Way, here's the problem. The problem is when it's your turn to suffer, when it's your turn to be Job. And listen to me, everyone gets a turn. Everyone in this room will get a turn. I, I told you, listen, I, as one of your, I love you too much to pretend like you're not going to get a turn. Listen, I know we could build a crowd by just smiling and being happy all the time, but I'd be lying to you. It would be a lie. You're going to get a turn. And when it's your turn to be Job, and it's your turn to suffer in a way that words can't fix. And listen, I know for most of us, this is a future reality, but not all of us. There are some of us in this room right now so desperately lonely. So desperately lonely. Wanting to scream out. Whose marriage is on such brink feel like, listen, I, no one understands me. No one knows the pain of my childhood. Like, I, I know it is a present reality for some of us, but for most of us, this kind of Job suffering is a future reality. And when that day gets here, when that day gets here, if church is an event, if church equals 608 Aurora, you will feel alone in a crowd. You will sit in a room like this or on a Tuesday night. You will sit in a living room or a Thursday night in another living room. You will sit in a living room and you will be in a room of people and you will feel alone in a crowd. And you will say, 
they don't understand me. Therefore, God doesn't understand me. If they don't understand me, they don't care. If God doesn't understand me, he might not care either. It's very practical. That's why dating the church is dangerous. That's why hopping place to place to place to place to place is dangerous. And some of you, it's time to put down roots. It's time to stop dating and flirting sojourn and to say, I I, I want these to be my people. I want this to be my people. Because you too are going to get a turn and you need a people. You need a people who dwell as kinsmen where God is present among you. So I'm going to take that next step in. And for some of you, you've been in for a long time. In fact, you've been in so long that being vulnerable and honest in your suffering uh, almost feels like an illusion because you've created this image of yourself that everything is okay all of the time, but you've known for years it's not true, yet you can't get through that wall to be honest about who you are and where you are in your suffering. And it's time. It's time. And so let's finish where we started. With what does Job's Redeemer have to offer Aggie parents who lost children? I'll tell you what Job's Redeemer doesn't offer. His Redeemer doesn't offer pat answers and pithy statements. What he does offer is a Redeemer who cares so much, who loves you enough to have taken the deep plunge into suffering with you, who is willing to come and die to suffer with you so that in your suffering you would know he cares. Can't mean you have a God who doesn't care. Our God came and suffered with us. He took the deep plunge into your suffering. And because he suffered with us and for us and for Job, we can dwell as kinsmen. We can dwell as brothers and sisters in the presence of God. And when you go above the clouds with Job, when you go above the clouds with Job, here's what you see. You see a God who came down through the clouds for you. What if this is us? Like, Sojourn, what if this is us? What if we're just that kind of community who as a community goes up above the clouds to see that God came down for us? And that we might in our suffering suffer as kinsmen together. And we might know that God is present among us. What if we're a people who extend the kind of mercy, vindication, compassion that Job was searching for to one another? The reality is uh, we're not going to know our answer to is this us for a while probably. All right, because when, when times are good and we're at dinner on Friday night and we're laughing and we're holding up a good glass of Merlot and we're celebrating, that's beautiful and that's a win. But let me tell you when we're going to find out if this is us. We're going to find out when it's our turn to be like Job. That's when we're going to find out. And so until that day, I pray that we might be and become the kind of people Job would long to be among Let me pray. Father, we love you. Father, I know that there are men and women in this room right now who are suffering, and they are suffering deeply. 
And for them, uh, there are no words that'll fix, there are no words that'll heal, there are no pithy statements that can make me feel better about myself. I pray that they would know that they too can come above the clouds with Job and see that you came down, to see that you sent your son down for them. And that in their suffering right now, in whatever it is that they're going through, that they know this. They know that they don't come before a God here who doesn't know and doesn't care, but we come to a God who cares enough to have come down and suffered with us and for us. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.